Hello, and welcome to the Seek Learning Podcast. I'm Casey Paul Griffiths, a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, and also president of the BYU Latter-day Saint Educator Society. Seek Learning is designed to bring you the best in educational research to assist teachers in professional home and church settings. And if you like what you hear in this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Now on to today's subject. Regardless of whether you teach biology, algebra, religion, physics, or driver's ed, we all agree that every teacher is also a therapist. Teachers see students who are struggling with emotional and mental health and are often the first ones to intervene. As part of my work at BYU, I give presentations on mental health, and afterward there are usually a few students who come up after class and admit they're having a hard time. Sometimes this has led to long talks in my office about where they can get help. Now, my experiences are only a small part of the recent rising crisis in mental health among younger people. In a 2017 survey of nearly 48,000 college students, 64% said they felt very lonely in the previous 12 months, while only 19% reported that they never felt lonely, according to the American College Health Association. Students also reported feeling overwhelming anxiety, that's 62%, or very sad, 69%, or that things were hopeless, 53%, and nearly 12% seriously considered suicide. According to the 2017 annual report by Penn State University's Center for Collegiate Mental Health, the incidence of depression and anxiety, the most common concerns for college students, has risen in frequency. Data suggests that a dramatic increase in demand for mental health services is driven by higher incidences of depression and anxiety. In fact, according to a 2016 freshman survey administered by UCLA's Higher Education Research Institute, a record high of 12% of students reported frequently feeling depressed during the past year, while 14% said there was a very good chance they would seek counseling in college, and nearly 35% of all students felt anxious. So clearly, issues with mental health are on the rise. It might be because we're better at recognizing them, better at diagnosing them. But there's also something going on that's just causing students to feel a little more discouraged about their future, about their hope. And is there something we can do about this? Well, how can we help deal with the rising wave of mental health issues among our students? We might not be able to solve every problem, but there are a few simple principles that we can share with our students and the people we love that can really help make things better. And that's the subject of today's episode of Seek Learning. In the lives of Latter-day Saints, education is central to their religion and its practice. For members of the church, education is not merely a good idea. It's a commandment. At the David O. McKay School of Education at Brigham Young University, scholars carry out different studies every year in the field of education. In this podcast, we speak with these scholars to find out what they discovered about education and what does it mean for Latter-day Saints. How can these findings be applied in home and gospel settings? Finally, what inspired them to become an educator and how has it affected their lives? Education is the difference between wishing you could help other people and being able to help them. This is the Seek Learning Podcast, presented by the BYU Latter-day Saint Educator Society. Our guest on Seek Learning today is Dr. Timothy Smith. Timothy Smith loves working at BYU. 
Dr. Smith is also a fellow of the American Psychological Association. He's recently written a book entitled Foundations of Multicultural Psychology. Dr. Smith's teaching interests include spirituality and religion, social issues and social psychology, health psychology, research methods, multicultural psychology, ethics and morality, and family psychology. Now, Dr. Smith not only works in the education department at BYU, but he also enjoys teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and classes on the Book of Mormon. And he recently sat down with Betsy Ecton from our team to talk a little bit about mental health and how we can help our students cope with some of the mental health challenges that they commonly face. Well, Tim, we're so glad to be here with you today to have this opportunity to talk about your book chapter and to learn more about faith-based therapy and principle-based therapy there. So we're hoping that, first of all, maybe you can just begin by introducing us to the relationship between faith and principle-based living and mental health. Sure. Um, It turns out every action that we take is something that we believe may be the best course of action, or at least the least bad (laughs) among alternatives. In other words, most of our behaviors are guided by what we assume about the consequences. That belief that then leads to action is faith. And so when we wake up in the morning, we have a certain pattern, and we do it based on our beliefs about what other people expect of us, what we wear, how we groom ourselves, our hairstyles, etc. All of that is based on beliefs about what will get us through the day the best. Now that's kind of a simplistic example, I know. But the same thing is true for our mental health conditions. We act in ways that we believe will yield most benefit or greatest happiness or greater connection with other people. Those actions entail faith. In other words, everything that humans do stems back to what they believe. And so if we can modify what we believe, we can actually have better outcomes. And that is the basis of faith-based therapy. I could add that since we're in a school of education, the same principle actually applies to education, where teachers believe that certain material is going to be the best for their students, and so they act accordingly. And when teachers don't necessarily believe in a particular student's ability, they may treat that student differently than the others. And so even expectation effects among teachers come back to what are the teacher's beliefs. So positive outcomes in terms of mental health and positive outcomes in terms of education all come back to how do we enact uh, the beliefs that we have. Absolutely makes sense, doesn't it? Well, I love what you write about inner peace resulting from living congruently with personal values. How might a therapist help a client define their personal values if a client beginning therapy is unable to identify them? Great, and that's actually often uh, the case um, among uh, uh, many clients where they're responding to what they believe others want, uh, what their friends, peers, uh, society, the media are saying is important, and yet they still aren't feeling fulfilled even after doing or reacting to those other things or trying their best uh, to imitate. And then they're in this state of quandary. And so how does anyone help uh, someone else identify their values? 
we'll start with the process of self-reflection. And so just like a uh, person learning to do diving needs to first become aware of their body positions and how they move their body and and the resulting uh, changes that they experience as they uh, go off of the diving board, we need to become aware of our emotions. And how do we feel in different positions, in different locations, and in different circumstances? And then once we become a little bit more aware, now we're cued in uh, to learning what we truly value, what can lead uh, to better outcomes. And so, for instance, um, the brief narrative would be that, you know, if I want something, I'm going to be happy. But then people try that, and it actually doesn't lead to long-term happiness. And so what a therapist can assist the client in doing is see the whole narrative, not just the immediate gratification. Okay, well, tell me then what happened next. How did you feel after you got what you wanted or did what you thought would you know, give you praise among the people that you're with? What happened then? And then what happened? And then what happened? And you expand the narrative so that it's bigger, so that they can see the whole consequence, or at least more of the consequences, than what they had imagined uh, to begin with. That's the, the, the very start. That sounds awesome. I can see how those principles would really come into play there as people started to expand their reflective abilities as right. well. Well, we have a lot of people who really do understand the value of therapy, and there are so many different forms of therapy out there. What role might medication or other forms of therapy play in conjunction with faith-based therapy? Sure. The most um, helpful is actually not just a therapy, but many different techniques, number one. Um, Number two, added with medication if prescribed by a competent uh, professional. And number three, a whole bunch of environmental changes that we can make, such as increased sunlight, increased physical activity, which is just as effective long-term as therapy, increased socialization and social support, um, improved um, goal-setting behaviors, actually planning to do things and then doing them. It turns out a lot of mental illness is uh, related to um, overthinking things, and and, and what doing uh, can actually help us is, is undoing Um, kind of the stuckness that we feel by not doing anything. Um, Better diet, uh, nutrition, advice from others, uh, the people that really truly have our best interest at heart. They can see things that sometimes we can't. So when we do all of those things, then we tend to be a little bit more balanced. Now, at the end of the day, biology does play a role. And so I do not want any listener uh, to have the impression of, gosh, I've tried all of those things that Tim just mentioned, and I'm still feeling horrible. And so I want to say that, yes, mental illness and and well-being, they are very complex and take a lot of devoted time, energy, attention, uh, feedback, et cetera. And so hang in there. You know, we'll keep working at it, and, and things will improve. They, they really do tend to get better uh, over the long run. More specifically, uh, to answer your question, uh, medication is a um, vital part of many mental health diagnoses, but it's not the end-all be-all. 
what medication is really good at is increasing our abilities to then take action in other areas where we need to take action to do the things that will help promote our well-being. And so by itself, medication is not as, as effective as with other forms of uh, treatment, but therapy alone is not as effective unless combined with the other things that I just mentioned. So doing as much as we can with as much support as we can tends to be the best answer. Life is definitely very multifaceted, is it not? Yeah, totally. And you talk about those supports. Because this type of therapy requires a lot of time and effort, what type of support helps clients use their agency to engage in principle-centered living? It has to be trusted, um, first and foremost. Support often among friends is somewhat helpful, which is good, but then sometimes well-meaning family members or friends might say things or do certain things that can send messages of, you know, I'm really just trying to help you. And then it kind of leads the person to think like they're less than. And the reality is any interaction can and should be mutually helpful. And so rather than assume that the person with the mental uh, health condition is the only focus of our attention, that supporting person can shift their perspective to say, you know what, I'm going to learn some dang good things here in this process. And yeah, I'm going to do what I can do to, quote, support, but I'm also going to be implicitly supported in the process and maybe even learn some things that I can improve. And so that's an example. But we all know of instances where well-meaning people have just flat out done or said the wrong thing. And then it makes us gun-shy to ever want to talk or open up to anybody else. Unfortunately, it's so true. <laughs> We've seen that, haven't we? You write in your chapter about self-reliance versus independent faith. And that kind of ties in, in a way, to these interactions with others there. But you also write about how it applies not only to individuals, but also to social groups. Can you elaborate on this concept? Sure. So in the United States of America and other kind of individualistic nations, we're constantly told that if you do all that you can on yourself, then that is success. And you must succeed on your own. And, you know, as a student, um, your grades are really up to your efforts. The reality is a lot more complex than that, because if the student puts forth all kinds of efforts, but then goes home and there's abuse in the home or there's lack of food in the home, then there's a context that is affecting that child's performance in the school. And so as much as we'd like to believe that it's all about doing what we can individually, we actually need to look at contexts and relationships. And where faith kind of comes in is the recognition that we are all interdependent and that the very assertion that we can do it on ourselves is actually against the notion of faith, which seems kind of strange to us because we're used to thinking, no, if I just exercise more faith, then I'll have more spirituality and more blessings and I will then... It's not true. Heavenly Father doesn't give us all of our dreams just because we want them to be there and work toward them. We live in circumstances in which we must constantly exercise trust in complexity in very difficult circumstances. 
And so how we can kind of shift is to recognize right up front that we are interdependent and that our mental health is interdependent. And so instead of uh, thinking in terms of I and my progression, I can start to shift my worldview to we. How can we help each other as the family truly that we are? And that's the biggest implication for society, is changing it from a me to a we societal perception. I love that. You can see how it's faith-based not only for the client, but for the therapist and for each and every one of us as we interact with one another. That's, that's really great. Um, you observe in your chapter that people experiencing prolonged pain often experience emotional malaise and that the association is so obvious we assume it to be causal, but it's not. Since this mortal experience includes painful events for all of us, how do we use faith to keep those events from resulting in dysfunction? Right. Pain is just frankly everywhere. And so kind of worded differently what you just said is life hurts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it hurts in many ways, in, in many circumstances, despite our best efforts to prevent pain. And so we can assume that some things are going to lead to happiness, but the reality is that any path we take will have discomfort. It will have stretching. It will have flat-out injustice at times. And so then, rather than put all our eggs in the basket of, I'm going to do this and therefore I will be happy. We're instead shifting our focus to how can I trust the process? And specifically how we can do that is trust in correct principles. And those principles are found in the Holy Scriptures or taught by uh, the Lord's anointed prophets. By heeding those principles, such as patience, endurance, um, charity, forgiveness. We can then trust in the principle, even when we can't trust in the circumstance. In other words, if I have just been mistreated at work, I have a whole bunch of choices. I can react, which, by the way, is non-faith-based because it's a reaction. It's thoughtless. It, there's nothing in it. It's the natural man just coming out, and I can be angry or sad or withdraw. But that's just a reaction. That's not faith. The faith-based reaction is to say, okay, I want to wring this person's neck, but instead, I'm going to exercise a little bit of faith and ask the person, hey, I don't know if you're aware of what you just said, but it kind of hurt. Or, you know, wait a minute, what, why is this such an intense issue for you? Help me understand what's going on. Or... Uh, you know, actually, if, if this is going to be so intense for you, I, I really have to say that we probably should talk another time. So you create a boundary for yourself, but you act in faith, assuming that the person can meet you at a future time in a different place, and so that your conversation will be at that point what it should have been, but wasn't the first time around. Great. We've heard so much recently from our prophet about how the Lord loves effort, that effort that you're talking about to act on that faith and principle seems to be at play there. And you describe in your chapter how when we do our best to apply a correct principle, even when we're uncertain about how to do so, 
we're demonstrating faith? In what ways do our imperfect efforts propel us towards healing? I think we have to be honest. There's a lot of complexity in our, our life circumstances. And we tend to face different circumstances with our habitual, common way of responding. And then what happens? Well, we get different results. In some circumstances, our common way of responding is fine. Other circumstances, we kind of get looked at a little bit funny. It's like, why are you doing that? And in still other circumstances, it's just flat out wrong. You know, what we usually do doesn't have the same effect that it has in other circumstances. You know, we, if we're really good at telling jokes and having a great sense of humor, that's absolutely awesome until we're at a funeral. And so there's just a, you know, contextual sensitivity of adapting all the time. And what faith-based um, living basically does is say, okay, I'm not going to live habitually. I'm going to live according to principles, which is I might need to be different with one person than another, in one circumstance than another. But if I rely back on the principles of trust and um, you know, listening, et cetera, et cetera, then I'm going to have better outcomes. And so sometimes if I'm, I'm an introvert, I might need to be bold, which requires my discomfort, but I'll have better outcomes. Seems so logical and yet so hard to implement at times. So far, Dr. Smith has done a great job demonstrating that there is kind of a mental health crisis happening around us that a lot of us are struggling and dealing with painful things that can be hard to get over. In part two of our conversation with Dr. Smith, he's going to suggest some strategies that educators can employ to help students that might be struggling in this ways, and also just help ourselves hold things together. So let's join the latter part of this conversation. For many of our, our listeners and for many of our, our fellow brothers and sisters out there, um, we know that the future holds some fear. And in your chapter, you state that a crucial function of therapy is to proffer a future worth considering, worth facing, worth seeking. There are so many, particularly among our youth, who are struggling with depression and anxiety. What recommendations would you give to parents, teachers, and adult leaders in the church to help them instill this hope for the future in our youth? That's an excellent question, and clearly our heart is reaching out uh, to the rising generation. And, and I think as adults, we are underestimating the emotional impact on children and youth. They are generally resilient, but they also can't communicate as well as adults can about what's going on inside. Or they don't know how to even you know, express it in some ways. And so number one, let's not overestimate a youth or child's um, response just because they seem to be doing well. I think we just need to take a step back and say, you know, they've probably been negatively affected in some way. And so even among uh, introvert teens who frankly would prefer to be alone, uh, this past year will have the negative consequence of having them be even more comfortable alone such that going back to school will be even more painful. And so we, we just got to be aware you know, of, of what's going on. And then second, uh, we need to ask, just talk, 
and trust that the very act of reaching out will be recognized as, as a good thing. Uh, third, don't give advice immediately. Don't try and solve their problems. Listen at least three times as long as you think you need to. And then, fourth, ask them. So what do you need? What would be helpful? What's been really concerning you about XYZ, whatever it was that they were mentioning? How do you think that this could maybe get a little bit better? Or what do you imagine being kind of the best and the worst scenario that you're going to face? Those questions, that self-learning, that self-analysis will not only give you answers that you're looking for as a parent or a teacher or trying to help, but it will also foster the self-awareness that we were talking about at the beginning. The more you can ask, the better the outcomes uh, for them as well as for both of you together. They will not perceive you as the unhelpful support person right, that we were talking about before. I know that I can definitely grow in my listening and in my asking. That's something important for all of us to remember, I believe. So another thing that we can take into account is that kids in particular need engagement, movement, activity. And so by fostering those opportunities, that will um, benefit. And so please, over the summer, rather than having kids yet again Netflix binge, let's kind of drop that and shift towards uh, summer camp, uh, you know, YMCA, um, uh, 4-H type activities with other people that can actually improve their um, long-term um, happiness. The, the, the more we do, the better we feel. Well, Tim, it would be fabulous to hear a story about how such faith and principle-based therapy has blessed the lives of a client and or a therapist maybe that you've known. There's, gosh, too many cases that come to mind. I think I'll just say that for a person who has experienced, let's say, abuse or who has been um, imprisoned, the future might not seem very bright. And so using a, a case of abuse, once you've had power stripped away from you and been uh, violated in ways that are completely inhumane, your trust is completely dashed. And so faith-based therapy kind of seems like the opposite of what you would want. And yet, even then, a client who experienced prolonged abuse still craves that connection. Deep down, they deeply want to trust again. And as prolonged and horrific and horrible as those experiences were, there's the yearning that maybe someone out there can fulfill the dreams that I never had. And I guess I'm just the voice here today to say, yes, that's exactly right. That faith that you have, that someone is trustworthy, can and will be fulfilled. I've seen it happen time and time again. Hope on, trust on. So powerful. And I, my heart hopes and, and wants that, desires that for 
for all of those who I know are suffering amongst my own circle and, and amongst our brothers and sisters everywhere. It's, it's a difficult thing. Thank you. For the last part of our conversation with Dr. Tim Smith, we wanted to talk a little bit about him. We wanted to get personal and find out about his own journey through academia and also how his faith has affected him during this journey. Tim has a really, really interesting background, and it's great to hear his insights to understand how he reconciles faith and learning and how the two of them work together to build his testimony. We'd love to hear a little bit, Tim, about your educational background and what led you to seek education and, and therapy and, and these, sites, these types of career choices. Sure. Um, I, I'll just say that I'm a bit unusual when it comes to my career path. I remember being in the seventh grade um, and talking to another student saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a psychologist one day. That is just totally strange. Most um, teens have zero idea you know, what they want to do. I, I guess just for me, honestly, in hindsight, in seventh grade, I didn't know what a psychologist did, but I just knew that I liked listening to people and helping people. And if you could be paid to do that, cool. And so it uh, ended up working out. So I declared as a psychology major and really never looked back. That is awesome. You're right. Most people don't have that kind of a clear vision. So that's great that you were able to pursue that dream from the very beginning. So where did you do your graduate work? Sure. So I was at Utah State University in Logan, Utah, and loved, loved, loved my experience there. Uh, so during that um, opportunity at um, Utah State, uh, this was in the mid-90s, and uh, one of my research emphases at the time was cross-cultural or multicultural psychology. And being in Logan, Utah, there were some limitations, <laughs> let's just say that, to, to conducting uh, extensive research on the topic. And so I was looking around to say, you know, where could I study racism and interracial um, relations in a way that is way more than what I could perhaps get here? And so at that particular time, uh, Nelson Mandela had just been released from prison and was uh, aiming South Africa to completely shift. And so even though uh, uh, President de Klerk was in theory, you know, supportive of the transition uh, away from apartheid, um, there was a lot of work to be done. And so I applied for and received a uh, fellowship uh, from the Rotary. Uh, club and to all you Rotarians, that was a beautiful opportunity for me to take my family and to uh, receive a master's degree at Rhodes University in South Africa studying racism specifically. I'll just tell you, it was an amazing time to be there. Um, if you've seen the movie Invictus, I was there watching the rugby tournament on the TV screen. This was real uh, to me when the Rugby World Cup was there, and Nelson Mandela basically rallied the country around the Springboks. That's the national uh, rugby club. And uh, they won uh, the tournament. And, and for that to happen, the elation in the nation, it was truly symbolic of we are a new South Africa. Rugby had been a white sport. Blacks were denied. 
access to that kind of activity. But because there was a member of the um, team who was of black African origin, it sent a signal, we are united moving forward as, as a nation. And, and truly, um, there was a lot of good vibes in the air. Now, I have to be honest, there was also a lot of traditions of the fathers, if you will, that were very much still present. And so there were difficulties on all sides in terms of coming together. A lot of beliefs had to be um, reconsidered, and a lot of faith had to be enacted in order to trust that the future would be better than what everyone feared. What an exceptional opportunity to be a part of that and to see this happening in people's lives in action. That's exciting. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how education has helped to build your faith and drawn you nearer to the Lord? I think education, it's been such a primary lifting force uh, for me. Because a lot of what I thought and assumed about human nature when I first began to study psychology has turned out actually to not be the case. We overgeneralize. We don't consider circumstance as much as we really should, etc. So I am grateful for the ability to learn new true principles, if you will, through education. If it weren't for teachers who believed in me and expressed faith in me as well as the whole class, and then in the content that they were sharing, I really would have been living a life that was very narrow because my truths would be narrow. I would have limited options because I couldn't exercise as much faith in things that are actually much broader than what I had ever considered. And so education is completely opened, lifted, um, and strengthened uh, my ability to bless others. And so now the transition to God, I think everything that we endure and experience in life is our education. I think we have an individualized curriculum with a master teacher who doesn't mind our pain. I don't mean that to be insensitive. I mean that in the most loving way possible. As a parent, if a child is uncomfortable or awkward, we'll actually be okay with that as long as we know where they're headed. And if we can keep fostering them, then we can see past the inconveniences and the terrors that afflict us in childhood. My life has been a very educational and painful process, but I love my Father in Heaven and my heavenly family because they are constantly teaching me and reaching out to me. And through faith, I actually see more miracles than I used to see. In other words, I see more of God the more I look for him and his influence. Thank you, Tim. We are blessed to have our master teacher and each of us can definitely draw near unto him as we work to develop these faith-based principles. Thank you so much for talking with us today. We appreciate your insights and your profound thoughts there. Thank you. Thank you so much. We want to offer our thanks to Tim Smith and Betsy Acton for that wonderful interview. 
The Seek Learning Podcast is produced by the BYU Latter-day Saint Educator Society in cooperation with the McKay School of Education. I'm Casey Paul Griffiths, and I serve along with Michael Leonard as the executive producers of the podcast. We also receive assistance from Joe Backman, David Boren, Betsy Ecton, Lisa Leonard, and Heather Seferovich. Editing and production for this episode was carried out by our wonderful students at the McKay School with our theme and music composed by Alistair Schwerman. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, help us grow the podcast. Uh, Subscribe, write a review, uh, or give the society a like or a comment on Facebook or Instagram. The Latter-day Saint Educator Society also holds a conference every June where we get together and talk about some of the wonderful research that's shared on our podcast. We hope that you'll join us, and you can find out more about that by just Googling Seek Learning Podcast. We'll see you next time. This has been Seek Learning.